In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. If you guys will turn, well, if, yeah, if you can turn to Esther if you would like. Um, we will be going through all of Esther tonight. Not verse by verse. Esther is a story, and we want to hear it as a story. Um, so when I was looking ahead at the book of Esther, oh, by the way, this means next week we're going to do Daniel. We're going to start Daniel for a few weeks. And that then takes us to Ezra and Nehemiah and then Chronicles. And we wrap up the Old Testament right in time for Advent. So this is exciting for me because we've been going through the Old Testament for a few years. Um, anyways, back to Esther. This is a story. It's meant to be heard as a story. And we're going to hear it as a story tonight. In planning, and as I saw Esther coming up, I had the idea that it should not be me who presents Esther, um, but we should have a woman's voice for Esther. So I asked my wife, who courageously said she would tell us the story of Esther, to do so. And she has worked hard on this, and she's going to present this. um, By the way, I said this last week, I think, but it's good to just be safe. Uh, by her coming up here, I do not feel that we're encringing upon any scriptural mandates about women not being able to teach um, because she's not actually teaching us tonight. She's telling us a story. She's letting the scriptures do the teaching to us. And anyways, this is not, I said this last time, it's not my theological or political position on anything in these matters. Um, but so yeah, she's going to share with us and it's going to be through a series of different female perspectives throughout the story. Um, I believe that she came along some letters and journal entries and will be sharing them with us. So, anyways, with that, Brittany's going to share Esther with us. Hi. So, Pastor Brandon said I worked really hard on this, but really, I just um, contacted a museum and they gave me all these excerpts from diaries and journals. And um, who knew that they had lined paper in the time of, um, of Queen Esther? But they did. And um, I was uh, granted to take very good care of these um, journal excerpts that we found. So um, I'm just going to dive right in. An excerpt from the diary of Queen Vashti first royal wife of King Ahasuerus. Six months. We've now been hosting feasts and parties for six months. Honestly, it's getting a bit exhausting. A little peace and quiet will be very welcome when the king is finally done showing off his wealth to the princes of the kingdom. I mean, we get it. Everyone gets it. You're very, very rich. We don't need six months of parties to see that. Perhaps the only thing the king takes greater pleasure in showing off is his women. Lucky for me, as queen, that's one humiliation he wouldn't dare expose me to, I think. I confess his unpredictability does have me second-guessing. Those poor harem girls. I can imagine the eye rolls every time a eunuch announces the king desires a beauty to entertain at the feast. But may it please the king, or really may it please his dinner guests, In truth, all it takes is a man to suggest his own desire, but frame it as the king's idea, and there it is. It's as good as decreed. My husband is a ship at sea, tossed by the direction of the wind. 
Of course, in his case, the wind is the word of a friend or an advisor. Does he know it has become a joke in the citadel? If it please the king, it's become an answer to many outlandish desires. I think I'll take the day off tomorrow. Ha! If it please the king. It is so hot. Perhaps tomorrow we'll have rain. Ha! If it please the king. I've married a truly foolish man. He acts on whim, his ears at the mercy of men, and his eyes at the mercy of women. Catastrophic would it be for his eyes and his ears to be at odds. Another excerpt. What has become of me? I have come to the lowest position. No longer a queen, I have been reduced to serve the king in his harem. I should have known. I did know. What did I last write in my personal chronicles here? Catastrophic it would be for his eyes and his ears to be at odds. And yet I have allowed it to happen. But really, I had had my last lot of his foolishness. As was befitting a queen, I was hosting the women of the palace to our own banquet. We were in the middle of our own feast when seven eunuchs came to summon me to the king's presence. The king desires your beauty. They couldn't be serious. Surely this is all a joke. Zethar told me, without meeting my eyes for shame, that the king was very drunk. And it was no joke. Well, I refused to go with them. For one, I was hosting my own banquet, thank you very much. And for another, to attend to the, to the king in such a manner is just not to be done by a queen. Truly, I thought once the king had sobered, he would regret his foolishness. That I could go to him and remind him that it went against my role as a host of the women's banquet to leave my guest. And furthermore, that the dignity of a queen is not to be displayed for entertainment to men. Well, how foolish of me to think that the, the king could be swayed by a woman's words rather than her beauty. Especially when such beauty has been denied him. Instead, the words of his men got to him first. He asked them what was to be done with me. God forbid he make his own decision for once. Well, they advised him to remove me from my position as queen and replace me with another. And it pleased the king. This next excerpt is from what is presumed to be the journals of a young lady in the harem of the king, um, of, of the harem of potential queens. I had my night with the king last night. I still don't know how to process my time with him or how to gauge where I stand in this vague ranking system. So more on that later. The mood in the second harem is di different than in the first. More anxious, more competitive more self-conscious and more contentious as we all try to figure out how we measure up, who the king will choose as his queen. In the first harem, I think none of us knew what to expect. Our naivety allowed for more frivolity. Most of us enjoyed the beautification rituals. We joked, we laughed, we had fun, we learned, we rested, some of us for the first time ever after childhoods of labor in the fields or at home. We made friends. Of course, not everyone got on well. There were arguments, fights. Some were catty, even cruel. I did my best to avoid them. Our eunuch, Haggai, did his best to keep us in order and in high spirits. And Esther did her best to keep the peace between all of us. It seemed easy for her. 
I don't think I ever heard a negative word about her. Sure, some were jealous, but in that way where you really just feel guilty for being jealous instead of resentful. I mean, not only is she beautiful, she's kind, she's funny and humble. She's not demanding of material cosmetics and clothing, even though they could be to her advantage to win favor of the king. She seems to rely on this inner grace to carry her through this. She's even Haggai's favorite. Of course, he wouldn't admit to that, but he advanced her rather quickly to the best place in the harem. I do hope she has her night with the king soon. Then she can come here and cheer this place up a bit. This one's an excerpt from the personal journals of Queen Esther, written after her ascendancy to the throne. Mordecai has saved the king. Two eunuchs, Big Then and Teresh, had plans to harm the king. To what degree, I still don't know. Mordecai learned of their plan and sent me word by eunuch. Thankfully, I had audience with the king that very evening. Of course, I could have sent him word by eunuch, but with such a delicate matter, it was best that it come from me. So I told him all of it. Big Then and Teresh's treachery, how Mordecai found out and sent me word directly, and how grateful I was that the king had invited me into his presence in such a time as this. Well, King Hazarus had the whole matter investigated, and while Big Then denied all, Teresh admitted to the whole plot and proved Big Then's involvement. And now both men have been hanged. If it were not for my dear cousin Mordecai, my king might be dead. I'm sure the king is already planning a banquet to honor him. Perhaps now I can finally admit my kinship to Mordecai and our people. Mordecai will be so highly esteemed that it will be a benefit to me and my people to own up to our familial ties. I should wait until the banquet, though, just to be sure. And this one's the following excerpt. Nothing has been done for Mordecai. He has saved the king, and yet no honor has been bestowed upon him. And worse, he has made himself ridiculous by refusing to bow to Haman. God forgive me for saying so, but I just don't understand why he would bring such attention to himself and the Jewish people. I have learned that he has admitted to the servants at the king's gate that he is a Jew. Is this his reasoning for not bowing to Haman? Is he trying to make a point? Or set an example to other Jews? And of what? Not to bow before men? When he told me, as I was summoned to the king's harem, not to admit or even mention the people that I come from. I don't understand. I want to honor Mordecai. I wish he had been honored or even just recognized for his service to the king. Honestly, I wish he had been given favor over Haman. Maybe that's why he won't bow down to him. Maybe he knows he's more worthy of the position which Haman has arisen to. Whatever his reasoning may be, I cannot own up to family ties now. And another later entry. My God, what is to become of my people? I have learned they, we, have lost favor with the king, though I don't know much more. Nobody will tell me. It is no concern for the queen, they say. I want to scream, I am a Jew. These are my people. But I'm now farther than ever of being able to utter those words. I hear weeping and wailing beyond the walls. My attendants gather in corners with hushed whispers. 
They serve me with bloodshot eyes and trembling lips. Are some of them Jews too? Afraid to own up to their own people as I have been? Mordecai sits at the gate in sackcloth and ashes. I long to go to him to bring him comfort. I've sent clothing to him that he may again hold himself with dignity in the king's gate. He refused them. Sent word back along with them. What good is fine apparel if in less than a year we will all be dead? I must learn of what this is all about. I've sent Hathat to Mordecai to bring me news. The next excerpt. It was Haman, that foul, self-serving sycophant, unworthy of his station. So this is why Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Because he hates Jews. Or maybe he hates us because his ego is so fragile to be broken by one man's refusal to bow before him. I've seen a copy of the decree with my own eyes. He has ordered for the destruction of all Jews, young and old, women and children, on the 13th day of Adar. Eleven months. My people will all be killed in eleven months. The city is in an uproar, and Haman and the king drink and dine with merry hearts. To see that the letter with the decree had been sealed with the king's signet ring was as a knife in my heart. How can he approve of this? What harm have the Jews been to him? I know how easily he is swayed by the suggestion of men. I've heard the jokes. May it please the king. I know what happened to Queen Vashti. But to approve of the utter annihilation of an entire people? Who is this unpredictable, dangerous man that I have married? Mordecai wants me to go to the king to beg favor for my people. But how can I win favor for the Jews when I myself have had no favor with the king these last 30 days? To go to him without first being called for, that would be my death. A note... Folded up, well-worn, refolded, crumpled. Some ink has been blurred out, almost illegible, presumed to have been wetted by water or tears. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This next one is written presumably following the receipt of this note just now read. Such a time as this? Is there providence in those words? I remember those were the exact words I used with the king when Mordecai had discovered the plot against him. That I was grateful the king had invited me into his presence in such a time as this. 
so that I could inform him of treachery and that his life may be saved. All this time, I've believed my purpose here has been to serve the king. Could it really be that my purpose here is to serve my own people? Right now, all of the Jews in Susa are holding a fast for me. For these next three days, my people will be devoting themselves to prayer and fasting, that I may find favor with the king, that for once, not my beauty, but my words may please the king. I and my maidens will fast too. And in three days' time, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Another excerpt. I couldn't do it. The timing, it it just didn't suit. I had planned it all out perfectly. I had an elaborate banquet prepared with plenty of wine. I planned to beg on behalf of my people after his heart was merry with wine. That's how the men do it, after all. But I had another advantage. I put on my finest clothing and jewelry and had my hair adorned in the style he likes best. I knew my words had to please the king, but I at least needed my beauty to get me to the throne. And even though I had planned it all just right, it didn't feel right. As I walked into his throne room, he held out his golden scepter to me, giving the signal that I was permitted to approach him. And just like that, my life was preserved, at least for now. So I touched the tip of his scepter, and he asked me my request. Well, I should have just begged for the lives of my people then and there, because I can't explain what I did next. I invited the king to my banquet, and then I blurted out, And Haman too! And Haman too? Where did that come from? He accepted my invitation and sent for Haman. Of course, now I needed a recourse of plans, but I thought this could work to my benefit. I could expose Haman to the king then and there at the banquet. But during the dinner, the two men were going on and on about the Jews lamenting in the city and causing commotion and the edict to be carried out. And the king just sat there listening to Haman painting the Jews in the worst possible light. And then the king asked me my request. I couldn't do it. It just wasn't right. So instead, I invited them, both of them, to another banquet tomorrow. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but tomorrow it must be done. Okay, these next two passages are believed to have been written by Zeresh, the wife of Haman. And you really have to forgive me for this, but I grew up um, on 90s children's movies, and this is just how I learned that all the wives of all the villains talk. So, sorry. (laughs) All right. My Haman has been highly honored by the queen. He was the only official invited to her banquet, besides the king, of course. And not just today. She invited him to another banquet tomorrow. What an honor. And he is so deserving of such an honor, too. All of his hard work to rid the kingdom of those terrible Jewish people. (laughs) Queen Esther must be so glad he's going to make them all gone for good. Imagine how she'll honor him after it's all over. 
Only one thing distracts my Haman of his joy. Mordecai, the Jew that started it all. You would think after Haman's edict, he would be begging for his life back. Falling at Haman's feet. Kissing Haman's feet to earn forgiveness and favor. But no. Haman said, not only did Mordecai not rise to him or bow before him, but he stared him down as Haman walked past. Despicable. So I told my Haman to have a gallows be made, and in the morning, make the king have Mordecai hanged upon it. With all the king's favor Haman has, I'm sure it will please the king. The following passage. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So Mordecai will not be hanged on the gallows. Haman never even had a chance to tell the king to do it. As soon as he went into the king's presence, the king told Haman to dress Mordecai in royal robes and a crown and put him on the king's horse and lead him through the city square. And worse, all of it was Haman's idea. The king asked him what was to be done for whom the king delights to honor. Uh, for once, it would be nice if the king had made his own decision. Well, Haman thought the king was talking about him. Because really, who is more deserving of honor more than my Haman? So he told him, give him the crown, give him the robes, give him the horse. Have one of the king's noble officials lead him through the city square, proclaiming, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And here was Haman doing all this for Mordecai. Imagine my Haman leading a horse through the city square with Mordecai up on top. After the king told him it was for Mordecai, he told Haman that he couldn't sleep last night after Esther's banquet. So he had some book read to him, and Mordecai was in it for doing something for the king, and now he wanted to honor him. I don't know. All I know is if it pleased the king to honor Mordecai, a Jew, this is not going to end well for Haman. I told him that, too. And right after I did, the king's eunuchs arrived to escort Haman to Queen Esther's banquet. At least he still has her favor. <laughs> an excerpt from the journal of queen esther praise be to god who has saved his people from utter destruction it works and it has ended more perfectly than i ever could have imagined i knew from the beginning of this second feast that something had shifted haman seemed on edge melancholy even well, over the course of the evening, I learned through their conversation that the king had finally honored Mordecai for his act of service. He couldn't sleep last night, and by providence had the book of memorable deeds read to him. Last night, I knew the timing wasn't right for me to ask for my people's lives at the first banquet, and now I know why. And knowing Mordecai to now be in the king's favor, I had such confidence when the king asked me my request this time. I remember what I said. I had practiced it and memorized it in preparation. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, and to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And then 
The king asked, bless his ignorant heart, who had done this? And I pointed straight at Haman and said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman was terrified. His face lost all color. Beads of sweat broke out onto his forehead. Then the king got up from his seat and left the room, I believe to cool his wrath. And then Haman turned to me and begged for his life at my feet. Well, I had been reclining at the moment, so imagine the king's thoughts to come back and see Haman so close to his queen in her reclined state. He believed Haman to be assaulting me. And at once, Haman was put to death. They hanged him on the very gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. I'm still learning details of what that was all about. There's so much more to share, but for absolute exhaustion and, oddly enough, excitement at this time, I must save all of that for another time. This last excerpt, for all of our intents and purposes, will serve as an epilogue of sorts. I confess to the king my kingship with Mordecai, and the king elevated him to Haman's position. I have set Mordecai over the house of Haman, The edict to kill all the Jews could not be revoked, but the king allowed a counter-edict to be sent out, giving my people the right to take up arms, defend themselves, and fight fight their enemies on the 13th of Adar. And on that very day, the Lord's favor was with his people. We've been saved from the hands of our enemies, and because of this great victory, we now will celebrate the Feast of Purim on the 14th day of the month of Adar, when sorrow turns to gladness and mourning into holiday. For the Lord has humbled the proud and given grace to the humble.